If you have your Bible with you this morning, can you turn to Matthew chapter 14 as we read together verses 22 through 32. Matthew chapter 14. And while you're looking that up, if you're watching from home this morning, here in the United States or overseas, if you have your Bible, please open up and follow with us. The passage focuses on Jesus walking on water. To give you a little of the context, Matthew chapter 14, the passage immediately before this one, Jesus has been feeding the 5,000, and you're going to hear a little more about that in the course of our study this morning. So we begin at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. That was to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had, he had dismissed them, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on what on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. In my little neighborhood live two of the cutest wee girls in Greenville. I've mentioned them to you before. Gray is ten. Her sister Kate is six. And they come over from time to time for story time. And after story time, we'll play with Legos in the floor, sometimes have movie night together, and we know both the girls and their parents extremely well. A few years ago, when Grey was four, she fell off of her swing and broke her arm. And after she'd been at the ER and they put it in a bit of a sling and a plaster cast, I, of course, went to see them and find out how she was doing. And she was feeling awfully sorry for herself, as you can imagine, a four-year-old with a broken arm. And when I went in, she was watching the Disney movie Frozen on TV. And so I said to her, Grey, I was so sorry to hear about your arm. Tell me how you're doing. She said, Dr. Gibbons, I'm okay. And I said, well, I'm so sorry. Is there anything Miss Ruth or I can get for you? No, I think I'm okay. And I said, well, could I pray with you before I go? Dr. Gibbons, would you mind praying in your own house? I'm watching Frozen. (laughs) (laughs) 
And with all of the authenticity of a four-year-old, the only thing that mattered in her life was what was happening right there at that second. In this passage, we're going to see that Peter offers up an emergency-type prayer. He simply says, as you saw in the passage, Lord, save me. And we're going to look at that prayer in the course of our study this morning, but we're also going to look at the circumstances around that prayer and why did he offer such a prayer in the first place. This is an extraordinary passage of Scripture. You may find yourself taking more notes this morning than you normally would. If you're watching at home, it's a good idea on a Sunday morning, especially if you're watching us for the first time, to have not only an open Bible, but something to write on and something to write with. Because we take the Word of God very seriously. We spend time exploring it together. Some Sundays will go a little deeper than others. But it's a good idea to have your Bible open when you join us on a Sunday morning. And whenever we come to a new passage of Scripture or an event we haven't explored before, we're always going to look at the contextual context. And we mean that in every sense. Because what you discover here is when you come to chapter 14, you have one of the most challenging 24-hour periods in the life of Jesus outside of crucifixion and Easter Sunday. And it begins with the just awful circumstances of the death of John the Baptist. And why is that significant? It's significant for this reason. That when Jesus was very young, John, of course, was his cousin. Elizabeth and Mary, their moms, knew each other well. And I imagine that the first time Jesus had a sleepover anywhere, it was probably at John's house. And the first time that John had a sleepover anywhere was probably at the home of Joseph and Mary when Jesus was a wee boy. He knew John and knew him well. He was baptized by him. And so in those opening first 12 verses, you hear of just what is appalling circumstances that led to his beheading. And then in verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. He was eager to grieve the passing of John. But hearing of this, crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And in fact, they were there so long, Jesus ministering all day to those who were physically disabled, healing bringing, of course, renewal and refreshment to folks in great need. And then the numbers who were there were around 5,000 men, it tells us. Not counting children and ladies. This is a large crowd. And Jesus takes a handful of fish and bread and he feeds 5,000. It is a remarkable event. And on top of losing his cousin, seeking a place of solitude, he then has to minister to folks in need. It took the bulk of the day. You can imagine how tired he was at the end of the day. And interestingly, what Matthew does is this. 
In chapter 13, and if you teach Sunday school or teach a small Bible study group, it will be helpful for you to know this, that in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew records one parable after another, after another, after another. In fact, from memory, I think there's either six or seven of them there. And in chapter 13, you have that recurring refrain, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then Jesus tells a parable. But in chapter 14, Matthew is no longer saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. In chapter 14, he is demonstrating exactly what it is like. And you're about to see that theme come up again in the passage we are looking at. And so it's been a busy, demanding day for Jesus, no question. He has compassion on those in need. He feeds those who are hungry. And so we move into the passage we're looking at. After he dismisses the crowd, he sends the disciples back by boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's 13 miles at its widest point. It's 60 miles in length. It is on a major trade route north. Capernaum's a large fishing village at the side of it where the disciples uh, spent most of their adult life, certainly where Jesus spent most of his adult life. And he sends them from the other side of the lake across, probably back to Capernaum. And he goes off on his own to a hillside where he can pray and rest and seek his Father's presence. So that gives you a sense of it. And then in verse 24... But the boat, that's the boat the disciples were in. In fact, let me go back one. When evening came, Jesus was there alone. But the boat with the disciples had already gone a considerable distance from land and buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And so we see a storm getting up in the Sea of Galilee. And then notice verse 25, and this is where we're going to go a little deeper. During the fourth watch of the night... Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now let's pause right there. The fourth watch of the night was somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And if they had left after a busy day and Jesus dismissed them, you know they have been trying for several hours to get across the Sea of Galilee and it shouldn't take that long. But the headwind was so strong, they were struggling. And please remember, these are professional, seasoned fishermen. And they couldn't make it across. And the wind and the waves were getting up. And you can imagine the boat going up and down, and up and down. And remember, it's three or four in the morning. It's pitch black. They can't see a thing. And then in the distance, they see a figure... And remember, the figure is appearing and disappearing as the boat goes up and down. And they begin to say, who is it? They start asking themselves. It becomes pretty clear it's Jesus. He's moving towards them. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. Can you see that? Terrified. Not just concerned. Terrified. Not just curious. Absolutely terrified because here was a ghostly figure in the middle of the night and they're trying to work out what on earth is going on and he calls out to them. says, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Now let me pause there for a second. There are not that many times in Scripture that are described as a theophany. 
And if you take notes in the margin of your Bible, it's worth putting in there theophany, T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y, theophany. And it happens when God manifests himself in a physical form to ask someone to do something extraordinary, they're reluctant, and he usually equips and enables them to do exactly that. So throughout Scripture, God doesn't appear physically that often. But this is one of those incidents of a theophany. When Jesus is walking on the water in the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm, the disciples are scared for their life. They don't know what's going on. They can see Jesus appearing and disappearing. It's pitch black, and they're not sure they're going to make it to the other side of the lake. And they're terrified for all sorts of reasons. And here is Jesus appearing in front of them. And a theophany is often that intense, extraordinary spiritual experience where God does something supernatural. And that's exactly what's happening here. And the power of God is clearly at work. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to the disciples in the boat, I know what you're going through. I'm right there with you. I can see it. I know you're fearful. I know you're uncertain. I know you're worried about what's coming next. But please don't focus on your circumstance. Just keep focused on me. I've got you. It's almost as if he's saying, whatever you're going through, nevertheless, I've got you. You're mine. And that's where the passage is going. He recognizes they're fighting a powerful headwind. They're in the middle of a storm. And Peter does the unimaginable. Notice what comes next. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Now that's a strange request if you're on a boating pond with your grandchildren and there's a boat within 10 to 12 feet and it's a good friend and the friend says, walk over to me. That's a strange request in the best circumstance. But in the middle of a storm, in the unimaginable conditions that's going on here, Peter says, Lord, tell me to come to you. Notice what happens. Lord, if it's really you, if it's truly you, tell me to come to you. Jesus says, come. Now, can you imagine if you're one of the other disciples and you're trying to fight with the waves to get this boat to the other side and you hear Peter calling out to Jesus and then you hear him saying, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. And you can imagine them looking and thinking, excuse me, Peter, that's, that's just ridiculous. That's crazy. Peter, have you lost your mind? And then they see Peter with two hands on the side of the boat, putting a leg up, going over, bringing his other leg over, and walking towards Jesus. Now that's... Absolutely extraordinary. There's no question about that. And here is Peter walking out to Jesus. 
Now, sometimes in reading this passage, you'll hear folks say, this is a passage about taking risks. This is a passage about character and competency and courage. And to some extent, they're right. Those virtues are helpful and they're good to apply to our own lives. But that's not the primary lesson of this passage. And incidentally, the primary focus is not on Peter. It's on God. And here is Peter reaching out, trying to get to Jesus. And he does the unthinkable by walking in his direction. And please hear this. Peter was in a very strange position. He'd listened to Jesus preach and teach. He'd watched the impact of the gospel to transform lives and people being drawn into intimacy with God. He'd seen all that. He was there earlier that day. He was front and center when Jesus fed 5,000 from some loaves and fish. But up till now, it had always been someone else. But now Peter is front and center. Peter has decisions to make. Peter needs to determine how he's going to respond after Jesus says, come. And now Peter has to trust in the middle of the darkness, the uncertainty, the fear, the questions. And things change. And the question is, what is it that changes Storm didn't change. It was still there. And Peter knew there was a storm when he was safe inside the boat. Peter had been walking for several steps. He knew what it was to walk on water. That hadn't changed. Peter was still, I imagine, a little uncertain, but kind of very gently kind of walking towards Jesus. And notice what the passage says. And this is what changed Peter. Then he saw the waves and began to sink. Do you see the importance of that? That's what's called a key verse that unlocks the primary meaning of this passage. Then he saw the waves and began to sink after he looked at the waves. In other words, he took his eyes off of Jesus and looked at the circumstance around him and then he began to sink. Then he was fearful once he took his eyes off of Jesus. That's what made the difference. So let me ask you, ever been there? Ever had that experience? Assailed by doubts. When something comes your way that was entirely unexpected, your boss calls you into work, says thanks for your years of service and gives you a pink slip. You didn't see it coming. And you begin to sink a little. Or you find yourself taking a call from your doctor. And he tells you that your test results are in and the cancer is back. And after 18 months of being clear you begin to sink a little further. Your baby's ultrasound confirms your worst fears and your heart is broken 
and you begin to sink a little more. After months of discussion, the divorce papers finally arrive and you sink a little more. And one Friday night late, your teenager phones you and says, Dad, does our insurance cover the other guy's car as well? You sink a little more. Ever been there? When you take your eyes off of him and you stop listening, And you stop hearing him say, nevertheless, I've got you. You're mine. I won't let you go. And you find yourself in a place so dark that your life is dominated by a fear that is almost suffocating. Your heart is racing with that kind of fear. You don't know where to go next and don't know what to do. And in the midst of the darkness, you hear him whispering to your soul, Nevertheless, I've got you. You're mine. And that usually comes as a result of, Lord, save me, because there is nowhere else to go. And Peter learned what previous generations had learned, and subsequent generations have learned, that at the point of human extremity is where you're often met by God. And His love and His grace is sufficient to hold you up. And I imagine when Jesus reached out His hand, He pulled Peter close, wrapped His arms around him and said to him, Peter, come on. You of little faith. Did you honestly think I would let you drown? After all we have been through, after the times we have spent together, how many times I need to tell you how much I love you. You're mine. I've got you. Peter, regardless of what you're going through, nevertheless, you are mine. I won't let it happen. And then notice how the passage ends. And the end of the passage reminds us of two primary laws when it comes to understanding Scripture. And the first is this, that Matthew doesn't include this incident so we can come away saying we learn some important lessons from the life of Peter. It's not a bad thing, but it's not the primary reason. Matthew includes this in the passage so you can learn about Jesus and his love for you and his concern for you and the fact that he's always going to hold on to you regardless of how fearful, regardless of how difficult, regardless of how challenged you are. He's going to be right there with you, whatever the circumstance. Will those circumstances at times be uncomfortable? Absolutely. Will he at times ask you to get out of the boat and walk on water? Yes. Will you be fearful? Of course. Will it be dark? Certainly. But he's still going to be there for you. And notice how it ends. And it ends this way. When Jesus got into the boat, the wind 
died down, the storm was stilled and was no longer a threat. And notice how the disciples respond. I have to confess, if I'd been one of the disciples, I'd be going to Jesus and giving him a high five. Or going to Peter and say, what were you thinking? Peter, come on! And then maybe a fist bump because I'm glad to see him. But that tells you how superficial and shallow my heart is. None of the disciples do that. None of them do that. What does the passage tell us? Then they worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Why did they respond in that manner? Because they understood this. That he who fed the multitudes with five loaves and two fish was in the boat with them. And he commanded and controlled of the power and the forces of nature. And God in all of his transcendent wonder and glory was right there in the boat with them. And they were exposed to His majesty and to supernatural engagement with them. And at last they understood and their heart and mind and soul was compelled to fall on their knees and worship. Truly you are the Son of God. That's what's taking place. Because they grasped the enormity of the matchless, sublime, unprecedented, eternal presence of God Himself was there with them, and they got it. They got it. They understood that despite the darkness, despite the uncertainty, despite the fear, Despite all that was going on, he was right there with them and he is saying to them, nevertheless, I've got you. You're mine. So when you are fearful about the future, fearful about being lonely the rest of your life, have prayed and prayed and prayed for a husband or a wife, longing to have children, and it somehow seems not to have worked out, you can trust Him. Fearful for a grandchild with leukemia, you can trust Him. Fearful when a marriage is on the rocks, you can trust Him. Nevertheless, you're mine. I've got you. That's the message we take out of this passage. That's why Matthew includes it. He doesn't include it to teach you about Peter. As I said earlier, he includes it to teach you about Jesus. That's the point of the passage. And he reminds us that whenever we are in a place so dark, we can move in his direction. Because nevertheless, he'll say, come. Three quick points. I'll give them to you as a conclusion. Number one, at the moment of your deepest need and greatest fear, you can utterly and absolutely trust Him. Focus on Him, not the circumstance. Number two, 
please remember that Jesus is often found at the center of the storm. You can trust him. Number three. Peter never, never said, Lord, promise me I won't sink before he got out the boat. Peter was not seeking guarantees. Peter was seeking the presence of God. And once you engage with him at that level, nothing else in all this world will satisfy your soul again. Because right there, in that fishing vessel, the disciples looked on the face of God and were never the same again. So as you go into a new week, whether the last few weeks have been days of great blessing, great encouragement, sensing the presence and leading and directing of God, or whether they have been the most challenging of your entire life, please understand this. Nevertheless, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank you for all that we have learned from it. And we ask, O oh God, that you would indeed speak into our hearts and minds and souls. And in the darkness, you speak to us. Amidst our fears, you speak to us. When we are uncertain and worried, frenetic about our future, we can absolutely trust you and help us please not to take our eyes off of Jesus and focus on the circumstances but to firmly focus on you so we can likewise say truly you are the son of God Father bless us in the week ahead as we seek to live for you in Jesus name we pray Amen.